Very good. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 9? You know, last week we started studying one of the greatest sections of prophecy in the Bible. Daniel 9 verses 24 to 27. Now, again, you remember how the chapter started out, that Daniel was reading the uh, scroll of Jeremiah, and he realized that Jeremiah prophesied in several places that the captivity would last 70 years. Now, Daniel knew when the captivity began, and he quickly realized that there was only about three years left before that the children of Israel would be allowed to go home, and the captivity, of course, would be over. Now, Daniel knows he's, he's too old to go back with him. He's in his 80s. There's no way he's going back. But he loves his people, becomes very burdened to know what will happen to his people once they return back to their homeland. And so he um, is so concerned, he begins to pray. We studied that in verses 3 to 19 of chapter 9. And uh, he's really pouring his heart out to the Lord. You can tell the passion that is coming through, even on the printed page, because he's so burdened for his people. And um, because of his passion, I believe, because he's such a heart for his people, God sends the uh, angel Gabriel to give him one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible dealing with the future of the Jewish people. We already looked at verse 24 last week, but let me read it again. Gabriel said to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Let me stop there. The Hebrew is literally 77s. The Hebrew word is shabum. And uh, Gabriel said, literally 77s are determined for your people, that's the Jews, and for your holy city, that would be Jerusalem. As we said last time, and the New King James translates to 70 weeks. Uh, maybe the King James, I think, does as well. I don't know how all the other translations handle it. Uh, weeks is probably not the best translation, although in the Jewish mind, if you talked about weeks, in, in their minds, they understood it could be a week of days or a week of years. That's why they translated it weeks. But the Hebrew is literally sevens. Seventy sevens are determined for your people and for the holy city. And, uh, of course, here it's not seven days, it's seven years. So 77-year periods. So Gabriel is telling Daniel that God has determined, or the Hebrew is set aside, 77-year periods, which is a total of 490 years, consisting of 360 days each, for a total of 173,880 days. God has set aside those many days to deal with the Jewish people and with the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, as we studied last week, uh, we are told the purpose of these 490 years will be, again, verse 24, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. Now, if you weren't here last week, you'll want to go online and listen to that study because we talked about all of these at length, okay? And again, guys, remember that Daniel's prayer was out of concern for his people. What was he so concerned about? Well, at that moment, they were in Babylon, okay? They were in Babylon because of their national sins, idolatry, all kinds of wickedness, even to the point where they didn't keep the Sabbath for, um, for 490 years. Uh, they didn't keep the Sabbath. Every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year. The land was to lie fallow. 
You weren't to, to plant anything. And they hadn't done that for 490 years. God said, you owe me one and seven for 490. That's 70 years. That was part of the reason they went into the captivity. But Daniel's concerned uh, because he was burdened to know if his people had learned the lesson, uh, their lesson through the captivity. Uh, or once they returned back to the promised land, would they continue in the sins, the very sins that God judged them for to bring them to Babylon? Would they go back to those same sins once again? That's what he was really burdened about. You know, he knew why they were there. Had they learned their lesson? They were going back soon. He couldn't go with them. He, he, he just was, Lord, what's going to happen to our, my people when they go back to the promised land? Are they going to fall into the same old rebellion? And if they do, does that mean you're going to withdraw your promises to bring the Messiah and the kingdom? He was burdened. This is what was on his heart. And so God sent Gabriel with a prophecy. And the prophecy in part, well, to a large degree, answered that very issue, those questions in Daniel's heart. Again, verse 24, Gabriel said, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, as we just said, make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, you may not realize that from just reading that, but all of those encompassed, in part, the Messiah's coming. The Messiah's coming. Yes, it also dealt with the kingdom. But you can't have a kingdom without the king. So he's there by implication, all right? This was God's way of saying to Daniel, Daniel, it's going to be okay. My hand is on these people. And by the way, guys, when they left Babylon, they never did get into idolatry ever again. They never worshipped Baal or Ashtoreth. This, and we'll talk about why at a later time. But um, in verse 24, Gabriel basically tells Daniel that the Messiah is going to come. The kingdom will come. And I don't know, maybe Dan, uh, Gabriel saw the look on Daniel's face. I'm sure there was a look of, of reassurance that he was happy about that. But uh, Gabriel seems to anticipate, or at least God does, and so he tells Gabriel what to tell Daniel, uh, anticipated what Daniel was thinking. Okay, the Messiah is coming. The kingdom is coming. But when? All right. That was the next question on his mind. So Gabriel now goes on to tell Daniel, listen, the exact day when Messiah would present himself to the nation of Israel as their king. Verse 25, Gabriel said, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Gabriel says here that when the command is given for Jerusalem and its walls to be rebuilt, listen, that would begin the countdown to Messiah's coming. Now, be careful you don't fall into the trap of misreading what Gabriel said, as many others have done. Because the Bible records three different commands to build the temple, and many adopt one of those dates as the starting point of this prophecy. We know that Cyrus the Persian made a proclamation that the Jewish captives were free to return to Jerusalem, listen, and rebuild the temple in 538. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and chapter 5, verses 13 to 17. Darius the I in 517 B.C. 
gave a command to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem that basically confirmed the decree of Cyrus. So you can read about that in Ezra 6, verses 6 to 12. Artaxerxes made a decree giving, giving Ezra permission, save passage and supplies, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The year was 458 B.C. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 26. However, Gabriel's prophecy clearly said that from the going forth of the command to restore and build what? Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. And then he goes on to talk about the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Artaxerxes Longimanus gave the decree giving Nehemiah permission, safe passage, and supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and its walls on March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, we know it was March, and so that becomes the starting point for the famous 70 weeks prophecy. First of all, we know the year was 445 B.C. because in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us that Artaxerxes gave this command in his 20th year as king. We know from history he became king in 465 B.C., which meant his 20th year would have been 445 B.C. Further, it says in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us, uh, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. The month of Nisan, without a specific date attached to it, always refers to the first of the month. He didn't say, you know, Nisan, this date. He just said the month of Nisan. Whenever a month is listed without a specific date attached to it, it's always the first of the month, which in our calendar would be March 14th. March 14th. So Gabriel told Daniel that from the time the command goes forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah the Prince, the Hebrew could be translated Messiah the King will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Again, guys, the weeks are literally sevens, seven-year periods. And um, so he says seven weeks of years plus 62 weeks of years equals 69 seven-year periods or 483 years. Again, consisting of 360 days each for a grand total of 173,880 days. Now, if you add those number of days... To March 14th, 445 B.C., the date Nehemiah, excuse me, Artaxerxes gave the command to Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You add that number of days to that starting point, it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D. on our Julian calendar, Palm Sunday. The day Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, presenting himself to the nation as Messiah and King. You remember there were several times in his public ministry they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Remember that? And he said, my time has not yet come, and he'd slip away. This time he orchestrates it. He basically sets up this whole thing. Has his disciples go into town and uh, get the donkeys, and he's got the whole thing you know, taken care of, and he organizes the whole thing. Turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, starting with verse 6. This is Palm Sunday. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. 
And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. Other passages tell us they were palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. And so they spread out these branches on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna means save now. Save now. And this comes from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm that the nation was supposed to recite, in fact, cheer when Messiah finally came. Save us now. The idea was from Roman oppression because that was the whole idea. Every Jew was waiting for the day when Messiah would come and release them from Gentile oppression. At this point, it was Rome that was, uh, that was uh, you know, in control. And uh, so they were looking to Jesus as the Messiah to save them from Roman oppression. Save now. Bring the kingdom. Save us now. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, you have to turn there. But this was prophesied several centuries earlier in Zechariah 9, 9. You all know it. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You're going to know your Messiah, your king. He's not going to come riding a white charger. He's going to come lowly, riding a donkey. And not many kings rode donkeys back then. So you saw a king riding a donkey. So this must be the Messiah, right? But turn to Luke 19. That same day, Palm Sunday, remember now he was riding up the Mount of Olives. And they were all cheering, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. He gets to the top. If you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem from the top of the Mount of Olives, or maybe you've been there, you know that the, the Mount of Olives is a lot higher than the city. You're looking down at the city. And so he gets to the top of the mountain, begins his descent. Here's what happens. Luke 19:37. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city laid out before him, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The date of Jesus' triumphal entry once again was April 6, 32 A.D. And again, how do we really know that? Well, I'll give you another way of reckoning this. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 1 starts by saying, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. History tells us that Tiberius started his reign in August of A.D., 14. That would make this 29 AD. The Gospels tell us that Jesus celebrated four Passovers during his earthly ministry. The fourth of these would have been celebrated in 32 AD. Now, if you use March 14, 445 BC as a starting point, and again, add the 173,880 days to that starting point, remembering there is no year zero. So from 1 BC to 1 AD counts only as one year. Also, you have to take into account the 116 leap years. 
If you do all of that and take all of that into consideration, all those factors, you'll discover it will bring you on exactly to April 6, 32 A.D. There's a classic on this subject written by Sir Robert uh, Anderson. Uh, it's called The Coming Prince. And he used the um, Royal Academy uh, of Mathematicians to figure this stuff out. Nobody has been able to refute his numbers since he published this. In fact, it was such a monumental work, he was knighted for his efforts here. And you can read about that in his, his book, The Coming Prince. But, but also on Palm Sunday, April 632 A.D., or I should say in so, on Palm Sunday, April 632 A.D., Jesus presented himself to the nation as their long-awaited Messiah and King. But he was rejected by its leaders, and because of it, he goes on to prophesy there on the Mount of Olives. As he's looking over the city and he's weeping, he said, Luke 19, verse 43, For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus is looking forward. He's looking ahead. And as he's looking ahead into the future, 38 years, he weeps because he sees the terrible judgment that was coming upon the nation, the city, and the temple. In AD 70, the Romans would come, they would surround the city of Jerusalem, and after a 143-day siege, they would kill 600,000 Jewish men, and they would take captive thousands more, and then they would destroy the city and the temple. The rest of the Jews were scattered. Why did all of this happen? Because, as Jesus said, the people, his people, did not know the time of their visitation. Or, in other words, the day God had told the Messiah would present himself to the nation. In other words, he held them accountable, guys, for not knowing and understanding the prophecies God had clearly given to them, which amount to the signs of Jesus' first coming. I mean, they should have known the exact day that Messiah would come and present himself as king to the nation. Why? Because God told him the very day in Daniel 9, verse 25. What about the signs of his second coming? You know, we talk about the signs of his first coming. Over 330 prophecies deal with his first coming. You know, there's over 500 that deal with his second coming. They give us detailed things to look for. I mean, I tell people, look, if all the prophecies of his first coming came to pass with 100% accuracy. What makes anyone think that the prophecies concerning his second coming will not come to pass with the same flawless accuracy? Today is the day of salvation. If God is speaking to your heart, listen to him. Uh, listen to what he's saying and receive Jesus right now as your Lord and your Savior before it's too late because tomorrow isn't promised to anyone. Again, Daniel 9.25 Gabriel said, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. We know that 69 of the 70 seven-year periods that Gabriel said God had carved out of history to deal exclusively with the Jewish people and Jerusalem would be continuous 
would be continuous from the command to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem all the way out to the coming of Messiah. You say, well, then why did Gabriel divide them by referring to them as seven weeks and 62 weeks, again, of years? Why not just say 69 weeks? It seems that the first subset of years, seven times seven, 49 years, indicates that the, the rebuilding of the streets and walls of Jerusalem would happen in the first seven weeks or 49 years mentioned. Uh, it says, and the, the walls will be built even in troublesome times. We'll read Nehemiah as they were building the walls and what kind of opposition they got. But it seems that that first subset of years, 49 years, was the time that would uh, transpire before the walls and the city was rebuilt. After this would follow another 62 weeks of years that would lead up to the coming of Messiah the Prince, as we've just talked about. So guys, the full 70 weeks are divided into three parts. The first seven weeks, again, 49 years, specify the time that would pass from the command of Artaxerxes until the city of Jerusalem and its walls were rebuilt. The 62 weeks that would follow, or 434 years, would indicate the time from when the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt until the Messiah presented himself to the nation as king, which would be a total of 483 years from the time Artaxerxes gave the command to Nehemiah, then all the way to the coming of Messiah, because those years are continuous, those 483 years, okay? And then there was a final 70th week, a final seven-year period to complete the prophecy. Now, in verse 26, we read, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. In other words, guys, and, and don't miss this, okay? In other words, after the seven weeks, because they come first, and then the 62 weeks, or again, a total of 69 weeks passes, Messiah has presented himself as the king he's rejected. Four days later, crucified, he's cut off. The Hebrew word for cut off is a word that means executed for a capital offense. But not for himself, it says. He would be executed for a capital crime, that's true, but he himself would be innocent of that crime. Not for himself, that's the idea. He would be executed, he would die a criminal's death, but he himself would be innocent. Now, of course, we all know many places, but how about Isaiah 53? I think we've read this several times already in our study in Daniel. I don't think you can read it too much. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, you can read the whole chapter. It's phenomenal on your own. But he, of course, our Savior, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. In other words, he was beaten that we might have peace with God, is the idea. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to, our, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He laid on Jesus our sins. He was punished in our place. And when we receive him as Lord and Savior, the payment that he paid on Calvary's cross for every one of us is applied to our account. John says Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. The whole world will not be saved. They could be. Jesus paid the price for the whole world. But you have to receive. It's a gift. He is extending it to you, eternal life. You have to receive it by faith. 
and say what? I'm going to work really hard. No, Lord, I'm going to show you I'm worthy. No, you just say, thank you. What an awesome, incredible God you are to give to me a sinner. The gift of eternal life. I do not deserve it. But I thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who bore my sins. My sins were laid on him. He was whipped, beaten, that I might have peace with God. That's incredible. Now, after the 69 seven-year periods are fulfilled, and Messiah presents himself to the nation but is cut off or crucified, listen to me now. God's prophetic clock for the nation of Israel stops with one final seven-year period left. If Israel had received her Messiah at his first coming, he would have established the kingdom at that time, there would have only been 69 consecutive seven-year periods needed to fulfill everything talked about in verse 24. God's prophetic clock for Israel wouldn't have had to stop because the last seven years wouldn't be needed. Uh, it would all have taken place in those 69 seven-year periods and so on. But of course, the Lord knew he would be rejected. Uh, it was prophesied. He was going to be rejected. He knew that. And, uh, of course, his rejection opened the way for us to be saved. Because if Israel had accepted him 2,000 years ago when he came the first time, well, they'd be in the kingdom, and we'd be nowhere. Um, but here, there's more to come here that, Daniel, that Gabriel wants Daniel to understand. Again, verse 26, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, the people and the prince who is to come, who destroys the city of Jerusalem and the temple or the sanctuary, is a reference to the Roman general Titus and his troops, who destroyed Jerusalem, as we've already said, in 70 A.D. But as we have said many times before, listen, in prophecy, there is often a short-term partial fulfillment and a long-term ultimate fulfillment. Again, the short-term partial fulfillment in verse 26 is the Roman general Titus. Turn to Luke 21. Because Luke prophesies about this destruction of the city and temple under the Roman general Titus and his uh, troops. Luke 21, starting with verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Verse 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, we've talked about this in an earlier study. So, you know, I want you to understand that the short-term Partial fulfillment is, of course, the Roman general Titus. Uh, again, verse 26, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war desolations are determined. Guys, the phrase, the end of it shall be with a flood, probably describes the way Jerusalem was finally destroyed by the Roman army, which just swept over the city like a flood. They, that's how Rome did it. They just overwhelmed you with their superior firepower if you put it that way okay and uh, so they were overwhelmed like a flood uh, one commentator had this to say concerning the phrase 
until the end of of the war, desolations are determined. He said, and I quote, that invasion, awesome as it was, did not end the nation's suffering for war, Gabriel said, would continue until the end. Even though Israel was to be set aside, she would continue to suffer until the prophecies of the 77s were completely fulfilled. Her sufferings spanned the entire period from the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD to Jerusalem's deliverance from Gentile dominion at the second advent of Christ. End quote. So the Jewish people have been suffering for all those years, pretty much, uh, in their own land right now. And they are enjoying some peace, although they're surrounded by enemies. But um, for the most part of their history, uh, they have been suffering. Uh, and uh, it, it all goes back to the prophecy that God gave through Gabriel. But uh, as I said, guys, that's the short-term partial fulfillment of verse 26, uh, the general Titus and his Roman army. But the long-term ultimate fulfillment of verse 26 is the Antichrist. The last phrase... Till the end of the war, desolations are determined, I believe, is probably a reference, and again, we're talking about the Antichrist, is a reference to when the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies and the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and desolates or desecrates uh, it for the worship of God. From that time, that's going to be the midpoint of the last seven years, from that time till the end of the war, which I believe is a reference, remember now, when the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies and demands to be worshipped as God, he's declaring war on, the God, on God Almighty. And it's going to culminate as his troops gather in the Valley of Megiddo when Jesus, they know when he's coming back, the Lord has made it very clear that from the time the abomination of desolation is set up in the holy place, it's going to be 1260 days before Messiah returns. So they know when he's coming back. And they gather, the Antichrist does with his armies, in the valley of Megiddo to fight against God literally and physically. Of course, there's no fight. Jesus uh, wipes them out with the word that proceeds, you know, the sword that proceeds from his mouth, the word of God, the same word that spoke the universe into existence. Um, but I want you to understand that the Antichrist declares war on God Almighty. That war is going to continue throughout the last half of the, of the seven years. Uh, but when Jesus returns, of course, he will defeat the Antichrist uh, in battle, ending the war of rebellion against God that the Antichrist has been waging for the last three and a half years. Uh, until that time, though, the temple will continue to be desolate uh, and unusable in the worship of God. That's going to change. The Lord Jesus is going to come back. After he deals with the Antichrist, he's going to establish his kingdom. And at one point, a millennial temple is going to be either built or the Lord will speak it into existence. I don't know. You can read about that temple in, uh, in uh, Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. And at that time, the worship of God will be restored in Jerusalem and for the whole world uh, in the millennial kingdom. Now, verse 27, guys, focuses exclusively on the Antichrist. Then he, the Antichrist, shall confer... We've scoped now into the future. This is the long-term ultimate fulfillment of what's been said. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. I'm sure you all got that. We'll move on. <laughs> Look, let's just break it down a little bit. 
It says, then he, again the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many. Now the focus is Israel. Shall confirm a covenant with Israel for one week. The Hebrew word for covenant can be translated treaty. Treaty. I believe what's in view is the Antichrist is going to sign a peace treaty with the nation of Israel for one week. or In other words, a seven-year period. I believe it's going to allow them in part to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. This is one of the reasons they believe this guy is their real Messiah. He comes. He brings peace to the world. He works out a deal where the Arabs who control the Temple Mount allow Israel to rebuild their temple. Now, you can read Revelation chapter 7. It seems that the temple is rebuilt, but the dome of the rock falls in the outer court. And so in Revelation 11, John is given a measuring read, and the angel says, go measure the temple and its precincts. Don't measure the outer court. It's been given over to the Gentiles. It's defiled. So Revelation 11 tells us that the temple is going to be rebuilt. But guys, something else. It says that in verse 27, he will bring an end to what? Sacrifice and offering. That implies a rebuilt temple. You can't have sacrifices and offerings without a temple. So I believe one of the provisions in this covenant or treaty he signs with Israel will be to allow them to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. Now listen. When they signed this peace treaty with the Antichrist, listen to me, God's prophetic clock for Israel will start ticking again. And this will begin the final seven-year period of the 490 years, a period of time known as the Tribulation Period. I like what uh, Dr. David Jeremiah said with regard to this whole thing. Let me read it to you. He said, The Jews are God's chosen people. When he sent the Lord Jesus into the world, into this world, I believe he literally offered himself to his people. The Bible says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave uh, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, John 1, verses 11 to 12. When Israel rejected Jesus as its Messiah, he turned to the Gentiles and he put aside his plan for the Jews. Dr. Lewis Talbot, the founder of Talbot Seminary, said that one day he was on a train and all of a sudden they came to a stop. He asked the conductor what had happened and he was told, we're on a sidetrack. The express is coming and we had to get off uh, so it could come through. Dr. Talbot said that's exactly what happened to the people of Israel. They were on the main line, but they rejected the Messiah, so God placed them on the sideline as a nation. He calls out individual Jews, of course, but the Gospel Express, which we know as the church, is going through right now. We are living now on that express, in the parenthesis of time before Israel gets back on the track. And I believe we are right at the end of the parenthetic section, and soon the rapture is going to happen, then the tribulation will begin which we know as the 70th week of Daniel, that will be ushered in at that time. Now, when Israel, who was supposed to be a light to this world, that was something God, God had always told them that he wanted to use Israel as a light to the Gentiles. 
to show the Gentiles that if any people would make God their God, obey what he has said, they would also become his people and they would be blessed just as God had blessed Israel. Of course, as time went on, the Jewish people began to think God loved them more than everybody else, especially, you know, loved them more than Gentile. It even got so bad, they began to, the rabbis began to teach that God only made Gentiles to feel the fires of hell, that, that you know, Gentiles, you know, couldn't be saved and so on. And so uh, eventually they um, so much turned away from God's program for the nation. They were supposed to be a light. They got bogged down in all kinds of immorality. The light went out. And, of course, the uh, topper was when they rejected their own Messiah. So at that time, God set Israel aside and plugged the church into history. We are now the light of the world. Didn't Jesus say that in numerous places? You are now the light of the world. We are the ones that have has been given by God the responsibility to go into all the world and be a light, preach the gospel to everybody. Now, when the rapture happens, the church age will officially come to a close. The church is out of here. And so what does God do? He turns once again to Israel to be a light in the tribulation period for him. When the rapture happens, guys, there is not a single believer left on the face of the earth. We're all gone. And God never leaves himself without a witness, does he? So what does he do right away at the very beginning of the last seven years? He sends the two witnesses, Revelation 11. And through their ministry, we know they save at least 144,000 Jewish, well, they become Jewish evangelists, I believe, on the, on the order of Paul the Apostle. And they go into all the world during the, during the tribulation period, and God uses them to save millions and millions of people. Israel becomes the light during this time once again. But going back to when they uh, rejected their Messiah, you know, uh, Jesus talked about that in John 5, 43. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, again, a false Messiah, the Antichrist, him you will receive. And the Jews are going to. They're going to think the Antichrist is their true Messiah. Because again, he's going to uh, make peace. He's going to allow them to rebuild their temple. And so when the rapture happens, and the church age is closed out, Israel will sign this peace treaty with the Antichrist. And that guy's going to officially, listen, that's going to officially begin the tribulation period. The last seven years start when Israel signs this treaty with the Antichrist. This last seven years, we call the tribulation period, you know what God called it in Jeremiah 30, verse 7? The time of Jacob's trouble. Yes, God's going to be using Israel in a great way for his glory. But the Jews are going to be persecuted like never before. You think it was bad under Hitler? When six million were killed, that was unbelievable. The Bible says two-thirds are going to be killed under the Antichrist. I think the last estimate I heard was something like 15 million Jews in the world, maybe more now. If there's 15 million, that's 10 million are going to be killed. Almost twice what Hitler killed. Of course, the tribulation period will end with the return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. We read, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, the midpoint of the tribulation period, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In other words, he's going to stop the worship of the true and living God, the God of Israel. And he's going to begin, a, he's going to outlaw Judaism and any faith that worshiped any other God but him. 
And uh, again, turn to Matthew 24 quickly. Again, we know the temple is going to be rebuilt because he, he stops the daily sacrifices and offerings by going into the rebuilt temple, setting up his image in the Holy of Holies, demanding to be worshipped as God. Again, Jesus talked about this at Matthew 24, starting with verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is, who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Guys, this is Israel in focus, not, not the church. This is Israel in focus here. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. There was the beginning of tribulation period three and a half years earlier when the Antichrist signed this peace treaty with Israel, or they did with him. But as you move into the last seven year, uh, last three and a half years, it goes from tribulation to what? Great tribulation. The way Jesus described it was the first three and a half years are like a woman in labor, you know, and then she's, she's starting to have the contractions and she's starting to have the pain, but it's spaced out and not, the pain is not real intense yet. But then she gets into a point where she's in hard labor and the pain is really intense and the contractions are coming one after another pretty much. That's how the tribulation, the last seven years will take place. Start off, God will pour out some judgments. As you move into the second half of the tribulation period, you move into great tribulation as a woman in travail. And of course, by the end of the last three and a half years, the world is reeling from one cataclysmic judgment after another. And then all of a sudden, Jesus returns and there's peace. Like a woman that has just given birth to a child, there's no more pain, there's peace. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. All right? But until that time, Matthew 24, verse 21, for then there shall be great tribulation such as uh, has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. It's the worst tribulation the Jewish people will ever see, ever, throughout their history. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The elect is speaking of, uh, again, of the Jews and probably tribulation saints. The idea, though, not the church, we're gone. What, what Jesus is saying is that God in his mercy will not let this period of time go on indefinitely because if he did, the whole world will be wiped out. He's going to limit it to, to three and a half years, the last part of the seven. Uh, turn to Revelation chapter 12. Remember he tells them, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, in the holy place, run. Don't even go back into your house and get your clothes. That's how they need to get out of town. Revelation 12, verse 6 talks about this as well. Then the woman, speaking of Israel, fled into the wilderness where she is a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days, the last half of the tribulation period. God is going to, I believe they're going to flee to the rock city of Petra. We've talked about this. Where they're going to take refuge. God has already worked it out by this time where they're going to be taken care of. And the Antichrist is going to try to get them, but for whatever reason, God will, they won't be able to. God will stop them, him in some way. Uh, Revelation 13. Verse 5, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Well, who is that? 
Mr. Big Mouth, the Antichrist. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in the earth. This is now uh, in the last half of the seven years. He's shown his true colors. Um, and he becomes a uh, military dictator and butchers millions of people for not following him or taking his number to show their allegiance to him. Revelation 13, verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs or miracles which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. This would be the false prophet, the, the beast or the Antichrist uh, sidekick. Um, but he's, he, he's, he's the guy that's his spokesman. He's preaching the religion of the Antichrist and has the power to work miracles like the Antichrist does. It says here that uh, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of, to the beast who was wounded by the sword and limb. Remember we said at one point somebody's going to try to kill this guy. Not everybody loves him, by the way. Somebody's going to try to take him out. He looks like he's dead. Three days later he resurrects, quote unquote. I don't think he's really dead at all, but the world thinks he was dead. And now he's back. comes back to life, a mock resurrection. Okay. And so now it's the false prophet is saying, we've got to make an image. He's God. Only God can come back from the... He's God. We've got to make an image and put it in the Holy of Holies, and now everybody's got to worship the Antichrist as God. So make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and live, verse 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would, would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And guys, I do not think this is some kind of sleight of hand or parlor trick. I don't think it's some kind of sophisticated animatronics. We've all grown up in this era where we have been to Disney World or Disneyland. We see what they've done with uh, automatons down in these places, very sophisticated robots. People are not fooled by that anymore. They won't be fooled by that. This is something real. I believe that this is going to be, we talk about the... Um, what is the word that they use? Uh, I, it escapes me. It's the word that is, is, they're talking about how that at one point they're going to be able to take the consciousness of a person and put it into a machine, a computer, a robot, so that a person's uh, consciousness, who they are, will be downloaded into a machine that will live forever. And I believe that, I believe personally, I'm just speculating. I believe personally the religion of the Antichrist is going to be, you can be God, you can live forever. Look at me. Follow me and I'll, I'll show you how to be a, a God too. The world's going to fall for it. And those that refuse, well, they're going to be killed, it says. One more scripture, 2 Thessalonians 2, which also speaks about this incident. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting with verse 3, where Paul said, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come. What day? The day of God's judgment during the tribulation period. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Well, back to... Daniel 9.27 talks about, And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. 
on the wing of abominations, one commentator said, abominations translates an ancient Hebrew word, and I can't even pronounce it to you, that is connected to horrific idolatry. The same word is used in Deuteronomy 29, 17, 1 Kings 11, 5 to 7, and then 2 Kings 23, verse 13. All of these use that Hebrew word to speak of gross, horrific idolatry. The author says the idea is that the coming prince, the Antichrist, breaks the covenant and brings an end to sacrifice and offering by desecrating the holy place of the temple with horrific idolatry, end quote. We just read about it. He puts himself, an image of himself there, and claims to be God. Again, verse 27, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Listen, this breaking of the covenant by the Antichrist and the abomination of desolation he brings into the Holy of Holies, listen, has a promised consummation or conclusion. It's not going to be allowed to go on forever. You know, and I believe, guys, this is the ultimate rebellion. Not only where people don't want to worship the true and living God, where they are being taught that if they do certain things, whatever those things might be, I don't know, it doesn't say, I'm convinced the Antichrist, uh, his religion will be how you can become God. We're seeing that already. That, that started in the Garden of Eden. Eve, you don't have to worry about eating the forbidden fruit. God only said that because he doesn't want you, you'll become as God. That, that's Hinduism in its embryonic form. Uh, the New Age movement is built uh, as westernized Hinduism. The idea that man can become God. We're already gods, we just don't realize it. If we can just get enlightened, we will be able to tap into our uh, the, the, the God flow and be part of God, pantheism. God is, God is all, okay? And, and this is the ultimate rebellion in my mind, is where people not only will not worship the true and living God, they worship themselves as God. But when Jesus returns, he's going to bring an end to all the abominations of the Antichrist, and complete everything described in Daniel 9, verse 24. Let me read it again. Seventy weeks, 490 years, are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Guys, that is the world we're going to be living in someday soon. Read it again. Meditate on the kingdom that's coming. When all sin is going to be dealt with, all rebels will be no more. Okay? Uh, you know, where God is going to bring a kingdom of righteousness to the earth, no more corruption in government because the king will be on the throne. He can't be bought off. He can't be thrown out of office. He's not elected every four years. He's a benevolent dictator. You love him and worship him, you're going to be so blessed. You cross him, Kiss the son lest he be angry, uh, Psalm 2, and so on. Well, that's not going talk, talking about us who are the redeemed, but people who are living in the millennial kingdom who have been born at, during this time and are not redeemed yet but have to make a choice. Okay, But the first order of business, when Jesus returns, before he even establishes the kingdom, which we're all waiting for, the first order of business it will be for him to judge the Antichrist, and of course his sidekick, the false prophet. Two more scriptures will close. Daniel 7, verse 11. Because God showed this to Daniel earlier in one of his visions. Daniel 7, verse 11. 
He said, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words. <laughs> it's always his big mouth. He always knows the Antichrist. Because of the sound of his pompous words, which the horn was speaking, the little horn, the Antichrist, I watched till the beast, again, the Antichrist, was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. What exactly does that mean? Well, turn to Revelation 19. And let's read verse 20. Jesus returns. The Antichrist has his armies there in the Valley of Megiddo. And we've talked about this. What a foolish sight this is going to be. You know, they all got their little flak vests on and their army boots and their little helmets and their, you know, AK-47s and surface-to-air missiles and, and Apache helicopters. They're going to take on Jesus, okay? We're, we're not going to let him take over. We're going to keep, stay in power and so on. Okay, well, he comes back. There isn't even a fight. How deluded do you have to be to think you can go to war against God and win? You know, people do that every day, by the way. But the Bible says the way of the transgressor is what? Hard. Okay, it's hard. It's hard to fight against God, the one who loves you and will fight with you to break you and bring you down to your knees so that you accept him and stop fighting him because only then can he bless you. But there are some people who are so hard-hearted, so hard-headed, they will go to their grave fighting the Lord. Well, we see what he does with the false prophet and the Antichrist when he comes back. Verse 20, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs or miracles in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And that will be the final destiny for all unbelievers because as we move into Revelation 20, at one point is the great resurrection of the unjust at the end of the thousand years. You can read about that, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. All those who have rejected Christ, will they're, they're already guilty, by the way. They think they're going to get their day in court. The court is already, it's already over. The case has been decided, guilty. They're just going to have uh, the sentencing phase now where they're cast into the lake of fire. So that's my version of Mr. Toad's wild ride, uh, biblically speaking. So wild ride, guys. I hope you got some of it. All right. And um, next time, God willing, we start the final section of the book. Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all connected. Chapter 10 basically sets up chapters 11 and 12. And uh, we will look at those starting with chapter 10 next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed to your people through your word what's coming, that we are not taken by surprise that these things don't overtake us like a thief because, Lord, we should be diligently and vigilantly watching because you've given us signs to look for. Lord, we don't want to be like Israel was blind to your first coming because they didn't study the prophecies. Lord, we don't want to be, you know, as your church, we don't want to be ignorant to the signs of your second coming, which are there. And Lord, we thank you. We ask you to give us grace to be diligent to use whatever time is left wisely for your glory and give us great strength, boldness, and courage to stand in these last days 
As the enemy is ramping up his attacks, the warfare has never been so intense. But Lord, we serve the God of the universe and no weapon formed against us is going to prosper because that is the heritage of those that belong to you. You protect us. And so, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to just continue to bless our studies in this incredible book. We ask it all in Jesus' name now. Amen.